Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. Today we'll be talking to the author of The Promise of Participation, Experiments in Participatory Governance in Honduras and Guatemala, uh, Daniel uh, Altschuler. How, how are you doing today? I'm doing okay. Thanks very much for having me. It was a pleasure to read your book. Uh, you've re- written this book with a, a co-author. Maybe you can, uh, before we get started with the book, uh, just introduce your co-author first and then a little bit about yourself as well. Sure. So Javier Corrales is my co-author. He's a professor of political science at Amherst College, and I'm currently a visiting scholar at the Milano School, um, which is at the New School for Public Engagement. Uh, great. And, and, you know, before we talk about the substance of the book, uh, there is kind of a unique story about the way this writing collaboration came together. So I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit about how you came to, to write this book together. Sure. Well, as it turns out, Javier was actually my undergraduate advisor um, and, in political science. And after I left Amherst College as a student, I went and did some research abroad in um, Chile and in South Africa looking at issues particularly related to homeless and landless people, but got very interested in civic participation um, and participation in development and governance initiatives. And when I came back to Amherst to meet with him, I knew that he was looking at similar things in Central America. And so together we worked on, we decided to work together on this project, which was to examine the effects of participatory governance in the context of community-managed schools in Central America, and in particular in Honduras and Guatemala. Yeah, before we get to the the, the places where you, you're doing your study, let's talk a little bit more about about participation itself. Well, why participation? You refer, to the, uh, refer in the book to um, a couple of generations of scholarship on this concept. I wonder if you could walk through briefly what we know about participatory governance and and what is still unclear what's what was the the gap that that uh, your book fills sure so first just definitionally when we're talking about participatory governance we're talking about government led initiatives to solve practical public problems which include things like education provision by facilitating participation of ordinary citizens in local forums and particularly local forums that have some type of important decision making authority so school councils in the context of our research is, is what we were talking about you know i think Since at least the 1960s, there's been a lot of interest in um, civic participation as a way to improve democracy, first in the context of the literature on participatory democracy, um, and then that literature sort of ebbed a bit, uh, and instead, what came next was a generation of people thinking about participation in international development. Um, And there was some really great literature on this, identifying some of the benefits of that, but also some some difficulties um, when it was particularly tied to isolated development initiatives, when these initiatives were captured by elites, etc. More recently, there's been a turn towards participatory governance, um, you know, in things like participatory budgeting, first in Brazil, and now increasingly in lots of other places in the world. And in all of these generations of scholarship and thinking, there's been this notion of 
kind of second, what some people refer to as secondary effects, what we refer to as spillover effects, that when you create a forum for participation, it will engender further participation um, with positive effects on civil society and democracy. And we have seen in the context of participatory governance um, evidence, for instance, from Brazil, we've seen a lot of examinations of urban um, participatory governance in Brazil. Um, and found some evidence of improved service delivery, greater equity in service provision, and increased participation within the process of, for instance, participatory budgeting and some inroads in accountability. Um, what we don't know, or what we what we think, you know, the gap that we were trying to address, well, there were a few gaps. One was that a lot of that research is urban and doesn't focus on rural areas. Um, Central America is a region of the world that is very untouched by this type of research. We also wanted to test this claim about does creating this type of participatory space engender participation outside of that arena? So, for instance, if a parent participates in a school council, does it help them to then become, or are they more likely to then participate in other types of organizations? Are they more likely to create an organization or forge alliances with other people? Um, and that's really what we wanted to test and examine through our research. Yeah, and you know, such pressing questions. Um, everywhere is, uh, you know, has, has these different institutions that are, um, you know, seeking out what you call the promise of participation. You know, it seems... Um, like we really don't know. And I think that's what's so interesting about the book. Uh, what's also interesting about the book is, is where you chose to study. Um, I, I really like covers, good covers of books, and you have a really interesting photograph on the cover. Uh, I wonder if you could talk about your, uh, your choice of Honduras and Guatemala, maybe in the context of this, this great photograph that's, that is, uh, is, is on the cover of the book. Sure. Well, hopefully our pretty picture will be sufficient to make people buy the book. You know, I think... We chose Honduras and Guatemala. The photograph features a school in a rural area where we did one of our case studies in Honduras. Um, you know, what we know about Guatemala and Honduras are, first of all, um, you know, they're among the poorest countries um, in the Americas. Um, but also, particularly in the case of Honduras, they're radically understudied um, in the social sciences. We see very little research historically. It's been done on Honduras, perhaps as little, if not less, than any other country in the Americas. So it's a really ripe place to do research. It's also a ripe place for comparative research because you have uh, many small countries on the Central American Isthmus with very different political histories. And also, in the case of Honduras and Guatemala, very, um, you know, some would say weak democracies. Um, you know, as recently as a couple of years ago, in 2009, we had the coup in Honduras. Um, some researchers have said that that type of political instability could also come to Guatemala. Um, and it's, it's a really important site to understand um, how, you know, what types of mechanisms work to promote effective participation and governance. Um, and that's what we wanted to do, particularly in rural areas, which, as I mentioned, are understudied um, both in Latin America more broadly um, and in Central America. And you focus on schools, what you call community-managed schools. 
So what is a community managed school exactly? Is this like a like a private school or a charter school or, or something very different than what we would recognize in the U.S.? So they are public. They're publicly managed and publicly funded. Um, these are schools that were created throughout Central America and in Honduras and Guatemala. They were created specifically um, to address the coverage gap in uh, rural Honduras and Guatemala, where um, in the 1990s, 25 and 40 percent of rural school-age children, respectively, lacked primary education access. So they were they were created to try and build a lot of schools quickly, and thousands were ultimately created. What's distinctive about the model is that parents were given a tremendous amount of autonomy. So parent councils were entrusted with the role of select hiring and firing teachers, as well as monitoring teacher attendance, um, deciding on certain supplies that they needed to buy, um, and administering the school. This this really does present such a, uh, a nice um, uh, uh, case to study. And, and you study it with a couple of different uh, methods. Uh, you, you approach this um, in, in you know, what would be called a mixed method using surveys and, and, um, and, and interviews and such. I wonder if you could describe a little bit about how you approach this. Did you do a lot of the traveling to these locations? You mentioned uh, hiring some uh, research assistants. Was this uh, a big part of the work? Yeah, it, it was a really big undertaking and among the largest of, of these types of this type of survey and uh, research ever done, and it was cross-national. So it was a, it was a big a lot of, uh, I'm going to choose my metaphor carefully, it was a lot of work. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, we did quantitative and qualitative work. The quantitative work involved um, a survey that took place in a representative sample of schools across Honduras. Um, and similarly in Guatemala, we did it across one region, the Department of Province, um, with the highest concentration of these schools. Um, and that undertaking took a team of, in each country, roughly 20 surveyors, people who we trained um, in, the, in how, to, um, how to deliver the survey instrument, how to ask parents uh, and complete the questionnaire um, in the way that they needed to. Um, so that was a very big undertaking that took months, starting in 2007, frankly, because we began with pilots, um, and then ultimately did the the survey um, with a very large number of parents. And then in addition to that, and, and Javier and I were on the ground for that, and then in addition to that, we undertook case studies. And that was important to really probe what was going on at the schools. Uh, how were parents engaging with them? What was their experience like? How could we understand some of the impacts that we thought we'd uncovered through the survey work? Um, so personally, I spent about a year um, in Honduras and Guatemala um, helping to coordinate the quantitative work and then also conducting case studies, eight community case studies. So it was a long process, but a really rich um, process. And the case studies were critical for really understanding the data um, and getting a, getting a real sense of the context. Yeah. And, and so what did you find? I can imagine having, having done some survey research on my own, um, you know, the surveys go out and you have, um, well, you have hopes and dreams for what you're going to find just as a social scientist, but you also have an investment in the, the success of the institutions that you're involved with. Um, uh, that must have been somewhat nerve wracking. Uh, did you end up uh, finding what you expected to find? Were there these effects uh, of the, the participation that, that you had uh, hypothesized about? 
Well, I think every uh, anybody who's ever done quantitative data analysis is familiar with the like taking a deep breath before you hit the command function in data or whatever statistical program you're using and, and seeing what you come up with. Uh, in our case, you know, I think it was a a mixed picture and, a, and a, a nuanced picture. You know, on the one hand, what we saw was we were working in very difficult communities to engage and, you know, where, you know, you had very low socioeconomic levels. There were a lot of barriers to participation and to promoting the type of spillover effects that we were looking for. Um, the first socioeconomic level, but also things education level, but also the fact that the way the programs ended up being run, there was very little support or there was insufficient support for parents to for many parents to learn what they needed to learn. Um, you know, the, the trainings were infrequent and certainly less frequent in Honduras than in Guatemala. Um, and really focused, the support that uh, was provided was focused on ensuring administrative functionality and less on really promoting participation. We similarly found um, programs that where political context had a really uh, big impact. So, for instance, patronage in Honduras exerted a very significant influence. So we see, in some ways, the deck stacked against these initiatives creating spillover effects. And yet, what's interesting um, is that the survey revealed that a majority of parents actually reported some type of skills development or learning. Um, and we saw a non-trivial minority of parents, so more like in the range of 25 to 35% of parents who applied these skills, who participated in additional organizations afterwards, um, and who demonstrated other types of spillover effects. And so we see that despite the sort of barriers to participation and spillovers that we found, that, that creating these forums these forums, imperfect as they were, still did promote um, participation, particularly generating individual spillover effects. Yeah, and, you know, this is one of these situations where it probably isn't necessary for for even a majority of people to to go on and form their own organizations or, or, or be involved um, if you can generate change amongst even, a, as you say, a, a minority. Um, that That could be a major social change in a community like this. Um, stepping outside of these, these two places, what do we make of this um, in other settings or, or outside of the educational realm? Uh, are there things that we can learn about this, about the design of participatory institutions that would work um, for, for some of the cases you mentioned earlier, budgeting, for instance, or outside of education um, what do we make of this? How do, what, are we, what are the conclusions that we can draw? Sure. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of conclusions. Um, one of them is that you know, it's worth investing in participation and trying to, to figure out how to do it best um, with two really important caveats uh, or additional or corollaries. One is that it's critical to understand the political context and how it's going to interact with the initiative that you're creating, um, whether it's a particular municipality in the state of New York um, or a province uh, in Latin America. Um, it's critical to know what are the patterns of political representation, how do politics work, and how may they impinge upon or circumscribe or interact with the initiative that you're creating. I think that's really critical as people think about design and think about inserting or working with local people uh, to determine what they're going to create. Um, the other thing, and ideally with as much conversation with folks in that context as possible, the other thing that I think is really critical is simply creating 
a forum for participation is insufficient, right? So simply saying, okay, you guys can come together and you can have these responsibilities, I think is important and potentially promising. Um, but it's one thing that's really critical in our research showed is training is critical. Those parents who receive training were much more likely to to uh, demonstrate the type of skills development um, that we found. They were also um, more likely, we found an indirect effect where those parents were more likely to demonstrate other types of spillover effects as well. And this resonates with, I think, the work certainly that I've done and that many of my colleagues have done in community participation, whether from an advocate, whether from an advocacy role, an organizing role, or an academic role, uh, which is it really you can't skimp on that sort of capacity building and training piece. It's really critical whether it's participatory budgeting in New York City or community managed schools in Central America. Yeah, and, and I know you have a you have a day job where, where you have the um, opportunity to to make some of these things real um, in in the U.S. Uh, is there following the publication of this book? Uh, uh, a publication to follow? Are you working on another book project or you, have you been pulled off in too many other directions? What's what's on the horizon for you? <laughs> uh, well, at present, there is not another book project for me, but certainly Javier um, is a very prolific author um, and, and continues to do his work on Latin American politics. Um, you know, and we uh, hope to continue to be able to collaborate. It was a really exciting project for us. Um, at present, I'm working on issues of civic participation um, in the United States, um, focused a lot on immigration politics um, and thinking about um, how the immigrant rights movement has evolved um, and also on the ground uh, involved in organizing efforts um, to achieve uh, immigration reform and a path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a really interesting book. Uh, the title, "The Promise of Participation: Experiments in Participatory Governance in Honduras and Guatemala," uh, published by Palgrave Macmillan. Uh, I hope that everyone has a chance to to read this book and and learn something from it. Daniel, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much.